All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to yet another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. How's everyone doing as we zoom through the summer? It's been a super chill summer here in Anywhere USA. Not chill in temperature. Super freaking hot. Um, Thank you all for spreading the word what had happened to your friends and welcome new listeners don't forget to join the what had happened facebook group where we share memes discuss cases and all that true crime jazz as well as the instagram and twitter accounts all links can be found below in the description box let's give a super duper shout out to our handy dandy intern this week i gave her the task of working on the script so Let's see what my little boo-boo did for us. For those of you who don't know, my intern actually is one of my own children, so I can use any term of endearment I want for the child. Anywho, don't forget to spread the word so you can grow our we can grow our listenership. Last episode, I discussed the heinously horrific 77 minutes of terror in the 1984 mass shooting of the San Ysidro McDonald's at the hands of James Oliver Huberty. This week, I thought I'd go back a wee bit farther in time to Michigan in the 60s to tell you what had happened over the course of two years at the hands of serial killer John Norman Chapman Collins. Listeners, if you are interested in a true crime read, the book I read four summers ago about this serial spree can be found in my references. It's plainly called The Michigan Murders. (sighs) So... Between the years of 1967 and 1969, a series of murders committed against young women in the Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti area of Michigan occurred. News and police gave this phantom shaking their communities to the core the monikers the Ypsilanti Ripper, the Michigan Murderer, and the Co-Ed Killer. Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti are nestled in southeastern Michigan. West of Detroit, Ann Arbor is the home of the University of Michigan. And while times were different and still more congenial, dare I say wholesome, the innocence and security once felt in these areas would be shattered by a singular monster who lurked and killed without much discretion. But who was this monster? And most importantly, what had happened? John Norman Collins was born June 17, 1947, in Centerline, Michigan. Shortly after his birth, his father deserted him and his mother, who would remarry shortly thereafter to another another abusive alcoholic alcoholic man uh, who would beat and torment her and her children. This marriage would only last a year before the two divorced. There have been stories recounted of toddler-aged John once having been thrown across a car to his mother by his stepfather. He also, during this time in John's life, once used the child as a human shield when another man pointed a gun at him in an altercation. The records are slightly confusing, but these instances presumably happened in, like, Canada... Because in 1951, it's reported that John, his siblings, and mother moved from Canada to Detroit, where his mother would remarry for a third time. When John's mother married William Collins, he adopted all three of her children and gave them his last name formally. 
Mr. Collins was yet another abusive alcoholic, so the marriage just, like the previous two, ended in divorce in 1956. Throughout his formative years, John was surrounded by violence, abuse, and rage, but somehow he was able to flourish in school and his extracurricular activities. In 1965, John graduated high school, an honor student, tri-captain of the football team, president of the C-Club, don't know what the fuck that is, and star pitcher on the high school baseball team. While John was able to uphold his reputation as big man on campus with his laundry list of accomplishments and accolades as a student athlete, dated quite regularly, the girls he dated described him as always being angry and, like, super sexually aggressive. Fuck that shit. After graduating from high school, John enrolled in Eastern Michigan University, where he studied education and pledged in the Theta Chi fraternity. He was later kicked out of the fraternity for suspicion of theft among his frat brothers. His grades began to take a dive his sophomore year at Eastern Michigan University. John had been accused of cheating and began committing petty thefts for a thrill. At this time, he also began running around and being a hooligan with Andrew Manuel. Ramping up with rage and aggression at the age of 20, John found his sister was pregnant, and in a fit of fury, John beat the man that impregnated his sister mercilessly until he fell unconscious and then proceeded proceeded to beat his sister until she began to bleed calling her a tramp as he beat her now sidebar did a little bit of snooping the sister was two years older than john also from what i found um there was history of mom being um not necessarily like the perfect what you would expect to be a good mother type role model so if you take that into consideration and this is just my hypothesis obviously i have no degree in psychology or any of that but um it would seem that textbook like a lot of other serial killers his aggression and sexual aggression and rage it stemmed from somewhere. Obviously, he was abused by his stepfathers, but he probably felt some kind of way because his mother obviously didn't do shit all to protect him from these monsters who continually abused him and his siblings. So when his sister, who was two years older than him, pops up pregnant by some rando and she's unwed, it reminds him of his mother who had a reputation of you know being a little fast and loose or whatever so just keep all of this shit in mind people because this is about to happen fast oh boy this is what this was 1966 and john was losing his collective shit it was the summer of 1967 when fighting petty theft and sexual aggression towards women would take a far worse, darker turn. Mary Fletcher was a 19-year-old brunette sophomore at Eastern Michigan University majoring in accounting. She was the oldest of, of seven siblings with three brothers and three sisters in her family. While she was growing up, she lived on the family farm with her family, which included her parents, her siblings, her grandparents had a home on the family farm, 
she had a couple of aunts and an uncle and their families as well that also resided on this property so they were a very tight-knit family this was on her mother's side of the family and she was best friends with her cousins you know she was best friends with her siblings they did everything together she went to catholic school in her elementary and junior high school years and then moved on to you know high school and then proceeded to go on to university where she would go on and study accounting as well as french those were her majors uh in the fall of 1965 when she started to attend eastern michigan university she also worked in the registration office and extension services mary was last seen alive by neighbors on july 9th 1967 in the evening she was reported to be walking towards her apartment when a young man in a blue gray chevrolet slowed to a complete stop twice to talk to her each time the man tried to speak to her it would result in her shaking her head and walking away on august 7th Two 15-year-old boys came across Mary Flesher's nude body on an abandoned farm at Superior Township and was confirmed as her body the following day via dental records. The corpse was badly decomposed, however, oh, because of the time of the year. Oh my goodness, the humidity. Um, and the pathologist studying the girl's remains was able to determine that she was stabbed 30 times in the chest and abdomen. The feet were severed just above the ankle the thumb and sections of fingers and forearm missing and linear abrasions on her chest and torso showing that she was beaten severely before her death. The missing appendages were never recovered. Theories of sexual assault floated around, however, the state of decomposition the body was in erased any possible evidence of her being raped. During further investigations, it was re revealed that the body was moved three different times. At first, the body lay atop, of, uh, lay atop of bottles and cans that were not clearly visible due to the elder trees. The body was then dragged five feet away into a field where she remained the majority of the time that she had been undiscovered. Shortly before her body was discovered, the body had been moved once more another three feet. Fast forward a couple of days after Mary's body was identified, a young man claimed to be a family friend walked into the funeral home asking to take a picture of Mary in her coffin for the family. The receptionist told him that it was impossible, and when he was denied the request, he said, you mean you can't fix her up enough so I could just get one picture of her? Once again, the re receptionist is standing there is standing their ground telling him no he leaves the funeral home silently and without protest almost an entire year later on july 5th 1968 joan shell a 20 year old student at eastern michigan university an art major was found mutilated and rel relatively decomposed by construction workers on an ann arbor roadside Upon inspection, it was discovered that Joan was raped and stabbed 25 times with a knife, estimated to be about 4 inches in length. 
Most of the wounds had punctured her lungs, liver, and carotid artery with an additional wound behind her left ear that ended up fracturing her skull. Not only that, but her throat was also slashed and her mini skirt was tied around her neck. Although she had been dead for several days, her head, shoulders, and breasts were in an advanced stage of decomposition. Her lower body was remarkably preserved, though. This leading the pathologist to conclude that her body was left in a naturally cool environment and that the upper third of her body was exposed to natural heat. It was also found that she was only in the spot she was found in for less than 24 hours due to the lack of blood under or near the corpse in general. This led investigators to believe that the murderer drove the body to the dump site from the place where the murder took place and made a rudimentary attempt to cover the body under clumps of grass. The similarities in the wounds inflicted on both Shell and Flesher made investigators establish a strong connection between the two women and four detectives were assigned to the case full-time. Joan was last seen alive by her roommate, Susan Colby, but both recently started sharing their house on Emmett Street. Colby last saw Joan at the bus stop at Washtenaw Avenue in the evening on June 30, 1968. Joan was trying to go to Ann Arbor to visit her boyfriend, and her roommate had accompanied her to the bus stop. However, it became obvious that she had missed the last bus. <sighs> Joan decided to hitchhike in order to get to Ann Arbor. People, I mean, like, hitchhiking is so taboo. I don't really think that people do it anymore. Don't fucking hitchhike, people. For fuck's sake. This is why we don't. Okay, because this stuff used to happen a lot, and this breaks my heart. Oh, jeez Louise. So, Joan decided to hitchhike in order to get to Ann Ann Arbor, and, you know, Susan attempted to dissuade her from getting into the vehicle after three young white men pulled up in a red and black Pontiac Bonneville, and the driver asked if she wanted a ride. She accepted, despite the warnings of her concerned roommate, and promised Susan that as soon as she got to her destination, she would contact her to assure she arrived safely. You know, like, arrive alive. That's the motto in my house. So, Susan, being a ride or die, filed a missing persons report after she hadn't heard from Joan in three hours. That's right, bitch. Three hours. Okay? She described the driver as a young white male in his 20s, and he had short, dark hair that was parted on the side. Even though they eliminated about, like, 150 block-and-run vehicles and created alibis for the registered owners who matched the description and and composite sketch, the search bore no fruit. Mm. On August 18th, the police and investigators exhausted their list of leads and reduced the number of investigators on her case though it remained open (sighs) you know the first 48 two months after joan's murder two eyewitnesses came forward and said that they saw joan walking down emmett street with a young man on the night of her disappearance although neither eyewitnesses was certain they believed the man she was walking with was guess who john norman collins Sorry, my assistant left a note in my script. It was actually gold. Who who, who was a student at, guess where? 
Eastern Michigan University majoring in elementary education. And guess what else? He lived right across the street from them on 619 Emmett. Of course, when questioned by police, he denied knowing who Joan was at all and claimed that he spent the weekend of June 29th through the 30th with his mother at her house in the Detroit suburb of Centerline and had not returned to Ypsilanti until July 1st. The police took his word for it and didn't check to verify his alibi. On March 25th, 1969, a surveyor discovered the nude and mutilated body of a teenage girl behind a vacant house on a remote rural section of Earhart Road, only a few hundred yards from where Joan's body was discovered. However, when police arrived at the scene, the savagery against the victim was drastically increased. He's ramping up. And... One investigator said that it was the worst thing he had seen in 30 years of police work. So that actually really fucks me up, too. Whenever you hear an investigator, a detective, a police officer, somebody say that they've encountered something that is, like, worse than anything you could even imagine, anything that Hollywood could create to give you nightmares on end, you know that messes me up when it's like the 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 thing that like fucked him up in 30 years (sighs) the autopsy report revealed that she had died due to several fractures to her skull covering one third of her skull and one side of her face which was caused by a, a heavy blunt object so blunt force trauma these injuries had occurred after the victim had been extensively beaten and tortured A section of her shirt was placed in her trachea to muffle her screams as she received extensive blunt force trauma to her head, face, and body, including lacerations uh, thought to be inflicted by a leather strap, welt marks on her chest and and shoulders, indicating that the killer had restrained her as they whipped her torso and upper legs with a leather belt. Wow. All this before they tore... Okay warning this shit's super explicit cover your fucking ears get away from the kids walk away i'm not the friend to be on speakerphone this is really graphic okay um all of this before they tore off a branch from a nearby tree and inserted it eight inches inside her vagina evidence surrounding her being the churned soil and blood splatters show that she was beaten not far from where she was discovered showing that she may have attempted to escape her attacker i don't know how but bless her for trying to if she did what is that is that a bird oh sorry i've got sound effects tonight my windows are open it's hot the victim was identified as 16-year-old Romulus high school student Marilyn Skelton, who disappeared while hitchhiking in Ann Arbor. I'm not victim-shaming, but hitchhiking is so fucking dangerous. The teen had last been seen outside a drive-in restaurant on Washtenaw Avenue two days prior to the discovery of her body. The autopsy report indicated that Marilyn had been killed 24 to 36 hours prior to her body being discovered. 
There were also similarities in the previous murders of young women in the area. For example, Marilyn's garter belt had been cut and tied around her neck, and her clothes were folded neatly and placed beside her body. After the murder of Marilyn Skelton, police from the five surrounding areas where the women had been abducted and or their remains were found pulled their resources and began to work together, assembling a team of 20 investigators to work the serial cases. The only evidence investigators had to work with were the descriptions given by eyewitnesses and the forensic reports. Because obviously DNA really wasn't a fucking thing at the time. I mean, this is like the late 60s. Police were able to see patterns emerging among the victims, though. Young white women with brunette hair all were menstruating at the time of their deaths. So sad. All had been strangled with an article of their own clothing. All had been beaten and or stabbed repeatedly and suffered extensive blunt force trauma. All of the victims' clothes and shoes were placed neatly next to their bodies, and all of them had been abducted, murdered, and dumped within a 15-mile radius of Washtenaw County. Investigators felt they were looking for a sole perpetrator. Three weeks later, on April 16th, because this motherfucker is ramping and raging and he's, like, really in a frenzy, at 6.30 a.m., the body of 13-year-old Don Louise Bassam was found along a desolate road in Ypsilanti. Don's blouse and bra were pulled up to her neck, exposing several stab wounds to her abdomen, breasts, buttocks, and genitals. Don had been strangled with an electric cord and a handkerchief had been lodged in her mouth more most likely as a way to muffle her screams like the other victims there was no sign of sexual assault prior to dawn's death the night before she was last seen at 7:30 p.m by a friend who walked her part way home earl kitt told authorities that he and dawn parted ways approximately five blocks away from dawn's home when she turned down that desolate road and began walking the railroad track to get home Upon investigating the area, the orange mohair sweater that Don had been wearing the day before had been found in an abandoned farmhouse located 100 yards away from the road her body was found on. Further search of the farmhouse basement yielded more evidence and a clearer picture came to light. Additional articles of Don's clothing, broken glass found from on the bottoms of her shoes were in the basement as well as an electric cord that matched the ones found around Don's neck. It became clear that the farmhouse basement also there was oh, also there was blood. There's like a ton of fucking blood. Okay, so there's that. Sorry, I didn't mean to I forgot to put that on the script it became clear that the farmhouse basement was where don had been murdered one week after the murder a detective who returned to the farmhouse basement to further investigate found a piece of don's blouse and an earring later later identified as belonging to marilyn skelton like in that basement area so each item had been left there after the you know the initial search of the basement the day that dawn was found connecting both murders okay so what i'm saying is they searched this basement this shit was not there they left the basement they come back to the basement this shit is there so your murderer has returned to the scene and he's left some clues for the police to taunt them on may 13th 1969 the farmhouse was destroyed oh fuck in an arson 
Five fresh clipped lilacs were found lined up in the driveway, arranged in an even row, giving detectives the impression that each represented one, you know, the slain victims. Uh, June 9th, 1969. So we've gone from where were we? This was April, I believe, when Don. Yeah, April 16th. So we go from April 16th to June 9th. Three boys discovered the body of a partially nude woman in a field not far from an abandoned farmhouse on North Territorial Road. The young woman received several stab and slash wounds to her chest, body, and her chest and body, two piercing her heart. Her thumb had been shot off, showing that she had like raised her hand to block the shot that was coming at her. Um, and she also sustained a gunshot wound to the forehead, and her neck was severed from her spine. The victim was identified as 21-year-old University of Michigan graduate student Alice Elizabeth Callum, who was last seen after midnight the morning of June 8th, walking towards her apartment on Thompson Street after attending a friend's party. On June 10th, several bloodstains and buttons from Alice's raincoat were discovered at a Northfield Township commercial gravel pit, suggesting that that was the location of her murder. By spring 1969, everyone in the area are, like, starting to freak the fuck out. Like, the students are, like, not here for this shit. They're like, listen, we got our ears to the ground. Our chickies are getting obliterated. You guys, what do we need to do? Because it seems like the fuzz isn't catching this creepo. Girls are getting, you know, jacked and, you know, murdered left and right. And it's damn near indiscriminate, you know. So, you know, the patterns were super obvious. The victims were almost all students that attended the universities in the area. Young women were living in fear and terror, looking over their shoulders, arming themselves with knives and mace, and also security systems for homes, like, skyrocketed. The sales did. Others chose to use the buddy system, where groups of, like, three or four young women would walk together, and sometimes they would have, like, one trusted male friend accompany them, or, you know, like, you would be walked home by that super trusted male friend. The pattern suggested that the murderer was a member of the student body, also, and these kids were not fucking stupid, okay? They were like, yo, this is somebody who has, like, this obviously is not some, like, older person that's just jacking people. This has to be somebody younger, because how else is he getting onto these campuses and, you know, doing this? So... Like I said, the pattern suggested that the murderer was a member of the student body or had been until recently, up until recently. At the request of an Ann Arbor citizens community, listen, they hired a Dutch psychic, Peter Herkos, and he was able to accurately describe details of murders that had not been made public he gave a description of the murderer as being a strongly built white male under the age of 25 and stated that he would kill one last time the final victim was 18 year old karen Beinman, who was also a student at eastern michigan university who was last seen alive on july 23rd 1969 
She was reported missing by her roommate, Sherry Green, when she failed to return to the dorm by curfew. Again, another down bitch. We love a good friend. Listen, if it don't feel right, say something. During a questioning of Karen's roommates, she was. Um, they said that she was last seen at around noon on her way to a wig shop downtown. Three days after her disappearance, Karen's body was found nude in a gully by the Huron River Parkway. The Emmy report revealed that she had been badly beaten about in the face and body and lacerations that were so severe, the skin had been removed and exposed, subcutaneous tissue, extensive skull and brain injuries with a large blunt object. She was forced to ingest corrosive substances with her neck, shoulders, breast, and nipples burned with the same corrosive substance. Yeah, like acid. She also, <laughs> my assistant, she also, like all the other victims, had a piece of cloth in her mouth to muffle the screams. Karen died of strangulation, though, according to the pathologist. The damage done to the skull and the brain could have also proven to be fatal as well. The instrument to do the damage to the skull and brain was never discovered. She was also raped upon further examination and her torn panties were forcefully shoved inside her vagina with traces of human semen and 509 blonde hair clippings about three eighths of an inch that did not belong to the victim as she had dark brown hair it was speculated that the killer came back to the crime scene to move the bodies possibly out of a sexual ritual and they hope to catch them this way. The police ordered a news blackout in hopes to lure the killer back to the crime scene, and their attempts were successful. Karen's body was replaced with a tailor's mannequin, with the gully surrounding the fake body being heavily surveillanced by police officers. At about 2 a.m. the following morning, an officer reported seeing a young man running away from the gully amidst the humid storm, though never saw the man run into the gully due to the heavy rain and insect irritation. And the officer tried to radio his colleagues. As he tried to radio to his colleagues, the rain rendered his radio inoperable. While investigating Karen's murder, um, and retracing the things that she did that day of her disappearance, the wig shop owner, Diana Ghosh, who sold Karen a wig, uh, was told to keep, uh, she said, oh goodness, okay, my assistant, I, okay, here we go, I remember this part from the book. So they went and they found the wig shop owner, right? And they're like, hey girl, tell us what had happened. And she was like, let me tell you what had happened. Karen told me to keep an eye out on the young man on the motorcycle outside of the shop because she had just accepted a ride from him and reached the conclusion that she had made two mistakes in her life. One was buying a wig and two was accepting the ride from the motorcycle's young rider. Wow. <laughs> Damn. Like, how bad were your beehive wigs, Diana, that she, like wow that's fucked up anyways 
The description of the man was heard by a patrolman named Larry Mathewson, who believed that the description matched that of John Norman Collins, who was a former Theta Chi fraternity brother. So, Larry rolls over to a former girlfriend of John's and he's like, hey girl, psst, do you like still have any pictures of like John? And she's like, you know what? I do. So she like goes through her like memories scrapbook because I'm sure it's in a fucking photo album, right? She goes through her scrapbook and she pulls out these two pictures of John and she's like, here, Lair, do whatever you need to do with them. And so Larry strolls on down to the wig shop and he's like, hey, Diane girl, is this the man that you saw with Karen the day of her disappearance? And she was like, by golly, you know what? If I'm certain about two things, I'm certain that I'm glad she bought that wig. And I know for sure that that's the young man that was riding on that motorcycle wearing the helmet that brought the young lady to me and sold that I sold the wig to. Some described John as polite with women while others considered him ill-tempered, having had stolen things from roommates. And he had been known to be sexually violent and he had raped a girl upon discovering evidence that pointed towards john being the main suspect police drove to the apartment john shared with his roommate arnold davis although john like swore up and down that he like a had an alibi and to quote shaggy it wasn't me you know he was just like it wasn't me i didn't do it i don't know what you're talking about willis like what who huh huh he also like was unwilling to go take a polygraph test at the police department so the following evening arnold witnessed john emerging from his room with a box covered in a blanket when he went to help with the door he noticed inside of the box a woman's a purple women woman's shoe like some denim like jeans or like maybe a denim skirt or something i don't know and a burlap purse after discarding it john told arnold it was just some old stuff that he no longer wanted john's uncle state police sergeant david leak had been on holiday with his family at the time of karen's disappearance and had only returned home on july 29th three days after the discovery of her body john had been temporarily house-sitting for his uncle in his ypsilanti home having been granted sole access to the house in order that he could come and feed their german shepherd upon the return from their vacation john's aunt sandra had noted numerous paint marks covering the floor of the family basement and that several items including a bottle of ammonia some washing powder and a canister of black spray paint were missing from the household the same day sergeant leak was advised by investigators of his nephew's suspect status on the level of circumstantial evidence unfolding against him sergeant leak acknowledged that the evidence thus far gathered against his nephew was compelling although in this first interview he did not advise officers of the items missing from his household or the paint marks he and his wife found upon the floor of the family basement 
However, the following morning, Sergeant Link scraped away some of the black paint, which had been sprayed in his basement to reveal a stain which looked ominously like human blood, and immediately returned to the police station to, to like report his findings. I was really going to say snitch. That's not snitching. That's doing your damn job. The basement of Sergeant Leake's home was subjected to an intensive forensic examination. Although forensics examiners and experts would deduce later that morning that the stains covered by the black paint had actually been varnish stains, one of the investigators discovered numerous hair clippings, many measuring less than three-eighths of an inch beside the family washing machine. When questioned as to the source of those clippings, Sergeant Leake, who had not been informed of the discovery of the hair clippings found upon Karen's panties, informed investigators that his wife regularly cut their children's hair in this basement, and that she had done so shortly before the family had embarked upon their holiday. Moreover, this search had also uncovered small bloodstains in nine areas of the basement. Two of these bloodstains were discovered to be type A, the blood type of Karen Sue Bynuman. The hairs found upon Karen's panties and those recovered from the basement of the leak home were subjected to a detailed forensic neutron analysis to determine whether they had, whether they had sourced from the same individuals. Samples recovered from both locations would prove to be a precise match. Evidently, despite John's protestations of innocence and denials of even knowing Karen Sue Bynuman, the girl had been in the basement of John's uncle at the time of shortly before or shortly after her murder. Questioning the leak's neighbors yielded additional circumstantial evidence. One neighbor, Marjorie Barnes, another down one, recalled having witnesses witnessing John leaving his uncle's home with a deluxe laundry detergent box prior to the leak family returning from their vacation. Fuck that shit. That's your aunt's tide. I'm with you. Okay. You know you a college student. What you know about that deluxe? box of died. I saw your aunt come up in the house with when we went to the grocery store together because we market together. Okay, neighbor, I'm with you. I love you, Marjorie. You're the best. Another neighbor informed investigators she had heard the muffled screams of a young female emanating from the leak household on the evening of Karen's disappearance. Fuck. The same afternoon, police searched the leak's family basement. John was confronted with evidence thus far gained and deduced. Because, hello, McFly? Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti ain't nothing to fuck with. Although John burst into tears when informed that the stains on the floor covered with paint had been varnished, he quickly regained his composure and continued to deny any knowledge of Karen Sue Bynuman. Later that day, having received initial laboratory reports indicating that Hare's samples recovered from Karen's panties matched those discovered in Sergeant Leake's basement and that the bloodstains recovered from this location were the same type as hers, John was arrested and his apartment and vehicles thoroughly searched. 
Despite recovering numerous stolen items from his apartment and being informed by Arnold Davis that John had been in the habit of committing burglaries with a former roommate of theirs named Andrew Manuel, no incriminating evidence linking John to Karen or any victim to the Michigan murders was discovered. Although officers were informed by Arnold Davis, another real one, on this date of this of the incident two days earlier in which he, Arnold, had observed John carrying a laundry box containing women's clothing and jewelry from his apartment and towards his car. On August 1st, 1969, John Norman Collins was formally arraigned for the murder of Karen Sue Bynuman. He was held without bond. At a press conference relating to the arrest and charges of John in relation to the last of the Michigan murders held, um, hold on a second, I lost my place, held without, he was held without bond. The press conference related to the arrest and charge of John in relation to the last of the Michigan murders, which would be Karen Bynuman. Held on this date, police superintendent Frederick Davids revealed that John had been a suspect in the Bynman case from the very day that she had disappeared, and that these, these suspicions had heightened following their forensic examination of David Leake's basement. Furthermore, surveillance of John had been initiated on July 26th, following the submission of a report compiled by patrolman Larry Mathewson detailing the positive eyewitness identification he had obtained and he had been formally arrested upon an open charge on the evening prior to his arraignment. So in like early August, investigators were contacted by their counterparts in Salinas, California, because if this story couldn't get any fucking crazier, they stated that they had a reason to believe that a Michigan individual named John may be responsible for the June 30th death of a 17-year-old girl named Roxy Ann Phillips. On August 3rd, two Washtenaw County detectives traveled to Salinas Police Department to review information and determine whether a connection existed between Roxy Ann's murder and those which John was suspected of committing in Michigan. Reviewing information regarding the murder of Roxy Ann Phillips, investigators discovered that immediately prior to her disappearance, she had informed a close friend that she had become acquaintance with an Eastern Michigan University student named John. What a fucking coincidence. Who drove, oh my gosh, a silver gray Oldsmobile Cutlass who was temporarily residing with a friend in a camper trailer. I wonder who the fuck the friend is. Upon tracing John's movements in relation to the dates of the disappearance and murder of the seven murder victims linked to the Michigan murder, which then included Jane Mixer, which, because Jane Mixer was omitted, I didn't even put her in the script... Police discovered that on June 21st, John and his former roommate, Andrew Manuel, had traveled to Monterey in John's Oldmobile Cutlass, which the pair used to tow a camper trailer they had rented under aliases and had paid for with a stolen check for the vacation. John had later returned to Michigan alone in his car. Manuel would later be located in Arizona following John's arrest. 
Through interviewing acquaintances of Roxy Ann, investigators established that she had been introduced to the individual she had referred to as John from Michigan through a 17-year-old friend named Nancy Ann Albrecht, who informed police she had herself been acquainted with John on June 29th and that she had mentioned her friend Roxy Ann to John on this date. Albrook described this individual, whose surname she did not know, as being about five foot eleven in height, clean cut, with dark brown hair, who had described himself as an Eastern Michigan University senior with aspirations to become a teacher. Albrecht had provided Monterey County investigators with an identikit, which, in addition to her descriptions of the suspect's possessions, circumstances, and statuses, bore striking resemblance to John Norman Collins. She had made arrangements to meet John at her home on the evening of June 30th, but John never arrived. Roxy Ann's nude, battered body had been found in a ravine in Carmel Heights, or in Carmel Highlands, on July 13th, with the belt belonging to her culotte dress knotted around her neck. I used to wear culottes. Sidebar. Yeah, what was old was new again. Um, it was the mid-90s. Early to mid-90s. Ooh. She had been strangled to death, and as with several Michigan victims linked to John, one earring was missing. Several of Roxy Ann's personal possessions would later be found strewn along State Route 68. The house trailer in which John and Manuel had traveled to California was located on August 1st in Salinas County, behind the home of Andrew Manuel's grandfather. A forensic examination of this trailer revealed it had been completely wiped of fingerprints. Upon questioning Andrew's grandfather, investigators were informed that his grandson and one John Collins had temporarily resided in the trailer, which they had hired from an Ypsilanti rental firm between June and July before both men had abandoned the trailer and he believed returned to Michigan. Having compared case notes, investigators in both California and Michigan agreed enough similarities existed between the murder of Roxy Ann Phillips and the Michigan murders to establish a a definite connection between the cases. And on August 5th, this connection was formally announced. An FBI arrest warrant was issued against Andrew Manuel, who was located in Phoenix on August 6th and detained by FBI agents. Andrew was extensively questioned as to his potential involvement in both Roxy Ann's murder and those committed in Michigan, which investigators had linked to John, and agreed to submit to a polygraph test. No hard evidence would ever arise suggesting his involvement in any murders, and the Washtenaw County's prosecutor's office would publicly announce on December 18th their satisfaction that Andrew Manuel had no knowledge of the murders. A a formal indictment would later be served against John for the first-degree murder of Roxy Ann Phillips in April 1970, although the evidence surrounding this indictment was ordered to be sealed until after John's trial for the murder of Karen Sue Bynuman. Oh, wowzers. So, on August 14th, 1969, John attended a pretrial hearing at Ypsilanti District Court. 
after hearing six hours of testimony from nine prosecution witnesses, Judge Edward Deke ruled that probable cause had been established and John was formally ordered to stay in trial for Karen's murder. At a second hearing in September, John refused to enter a plea. Washtenaw County Circuit Court Judge John Conlin ordered a plea of not guilty entered on his behalf. At this hearing, John's court-appointed attorney, Richard Ryan, challenged the validity of the physical evidence and the credibility of the circumstantial evidence before formally requesting the case against his client be dismissed and the evidence seized from his rooming house and vehicles suppressed upon the grounds that John had not consented to a police search of his property. Ryan further stated at this hearing he was undecided as to whether the upcoming trial be held away from the Ann Arbor Ypsilanti district due to pre-trial publicity and the final motion was held in abeyance until an impartial jury could be selected. So now let's get into the actual trial because there was so much stuff that was like put out there during the trial that I felt like you kind of need to hear it all so I mean like if you're willing to sit through witness testimony and all that jazz we can get into it because what I don't give a fuck about is that independent polygraph test that was bullshit we want the trial the trial of John Norman Collins for the murder of Karen Sue Bynaman began in the Washtenaw County Court Building on June 2, 1970. He was tried in Ann Arbor before John, Judge John Conlin. Initial jury selection began on this date and would continue until July 9th. Several motions by the defense counsel, of course, throughout the jury selection process that the trial should be moved due to, you know, the dear, to move to a jurisdiction outside of Washtenaw County because, of course, we're thinking that everybody here knows and everybody's going to be biased. The prosecutors at his trial, um, William Delhi and Booker Williams, opted to charge John only with the murder of Karen Sue Bindman, with the state contending that she had been murdered by John in the basement of the Leak household. In his opening statement to the jury on July 20th, Delhi outlined the prosecution's contention that the evidence to be presented would form a clear pattern indicating that John had been in the company of Karen Sue Bynaman at the time that she had last been last seen alive by Mrs. Joan Gosh and her assistant, and that he had taken her to the home of his uncle, where he had tortured and beaten the girl before strangling her to death at this location, and that he had then discarded her body before attempting to persuade his roommate to provide him with a false alibi. So, two primary questions before the jury. Delhi stated would be the accuracy of the eyewitnesses who would be called to testify and ultimately whether more than 500 hair samples found upon Karen's panties matched the hair clippings later recovered from the basement of Collins of John's uncle. So those were the two main bones of contention. Delhi formally closed his opening statement to the jury by requesting that they return a verdict of life imprisonment no, with no possibility of parole. 
The defense contended that although the murder of Karen was a vicious, sadistic attack, which had degraded her body almost beyond human comprehension, the prosecution's case that John was the perpetrator of the crime was a weak one at best. Defense attorney Neil Fink and Joseph Louisel in their opening statements labeled the eyewitnesses identification of both john and his motorcycle as flawed and unreliable which is bullshit because the yeah i've seen them the descriptions were pretty spot on and whoever their sketch artists were were really good because nailed it um you know they would also say that their intentions to introduce several witnesses who would provide an alibi for their client in the early afternoon hours the prosecution contended that karen sue had been abducted and murdered we all know is bullshit but john's attorneys also alleged that these alibi witnesses had been subjected to police harassment and that the tests conducted upon the hair samples found upon karen's panties were unreliable and that you know his uncle sergeant leak had refused to divulge the blood types of his family to defense attorneys Formal witness testimony began on July 20th, 1970, and the first two witnesses to testify were Karen's two roommates, each of whom discussed her character and her movements on the day of her disappearance. These two witnesses were followed by the individual who had found her body on July 26th, and the medical examiner was that was called to the crime scene, Dr. Craig Barlow. Dr. Craig Barlow testified as to the fact that although Karen had been deceased for almost 72 hours, her body had lain in the location where she had been found for 24 hours before discovery. The following day, Washtenaw County Sheriff Douglas Harvey testified as to the discovery of Karen's body, her subsequent autopsy, and his obtaining and updated composite drawing of the suspect with whom Karen had last been seen alive with from Mrs. Joan Gosh and her assistant Patricia Spaulding. Both women had agreed this composite drawing was accurate and only disagreed as to the structure of the suspect's chin. Furthermore, Diane Ghosh had identified a photograph shown to her of John as being the male she had seen with Karen. So to, to expand on their allegations that certain defense witnesses have been subjected to police harassment and that eyewitnesses' accounts had been flawed, defense attorney Joseph Lewisell subjected Sheriff Harvey to a 45-minute cross-examination as to his contact with the two eyewitnesses prior to completion of this composite drawing and this cross x sheriff harvey admitted to having having driven mrs gauche and her assistant to east lansing to view the updated composite drawings of the suspect in karen's murder and that he had shown photographs of various suspects including john to gauche prior to her formally identifying him in elina so three days after both councils had begun introducing witnesses Joan Gosch was called to testify on behalf of the prosecution. In response to questions from the prosecution attorney, she described how on the afternoon of her disappearance, Karen informed her um, that she had accepted a lift from a man waiting outside of the wig shop. When asked to formally identify the individual whose motorcycle she had observed waiting outside the shop, she pointed directly at John Norman Collins and said he did it. The testimony... Um, was further supported by Patricia Spaulding, who testified as to having observed John for between three to four minutes as he had waited for Karen to return to his motorcycle. 
Although subject to intense cross-examination by defense attorney Neil Fink as to the credibility of her testimony, Ghosh remained so insistent to her identification of John Norman Collins as being the individual who had waited for Karen Sue Bynum to return to his motorcycle. She was not one to be rattled. She was not one to be fucked with. Her memory was top notch. In an effort to discredit her testimony, though, uh, Neil Fink diverted questions as to the model of motorcycle she had seen outside her shop, to which she conceded her initial belief as to the model being a honda 350 which was inaccurate but that's bullshit because like you're asking the wig shop owner to describe i mean i'm not trying to be sexist here but you're asking the wig shop owner to describe the motorcycle and she's like two wheels okay bitch sold that's all i need okay i don't expect her to know the difference between a harley and a honda i mean i kind of would but whatever you know i don't expect you to know the difference between a harley and a honda okay i don't expect her to know the difference between a ducati and a kawasaki either coming from the future on july 27th arnold davis testified as to being in the company of john throughout the late afternoon and evening of july 23rd hours after karen had last been seen alive the following day, following a consultation with opposing counsels, Judge John Conlin allowed uh, allowed him to testify as to having observed John hurriedly removing a laundry box containing women's clothes and jewelry from the apartment and placing this box in the trunk of his car two days prior to his arrest. The prosecution had initially intended to question him in detail as to each of the contents of the box upon the grounds of the content that had previously been described to investigators may include, you know, Karen's missing cut-off blue jeans, which, remember, we saw denim in that box. However, the attorney successfully objected to the motion upon the grounds that, you know, John was solely on trial for the murder of Karen Sue, and that this testimony could suggest a link to the six other victims of the Michigan murders, then linked to the same perpetrator. So then the prosecution was therefore limited to questioning, you know, former roommate and, um, you know, in regards to whether the contents of the box included women's clothing and jewelry without specifically describing any particular item. So it kind of fucked him, but it didn't. So also to testify at the trial on behalf of the prosecution was Marjorie Barnes. We love Marjorie because Marjorie testified that on July 30th to having observed John leaving his uncle's home carrying a laundry box covered with a blanket on either July 24th or 25th, 1969. In addition, Mrs. Sandra Leake testified to John's being given a key to the family home in order to feed the family German Shepherd. So Mrs. Leake also testified to having cut her children's hair in the basement two days prior to embarking on their holiday with the family and that when they had returned home she had noticed that several items from her basement had been removed that she had discovered a wet soiled cloth containing hair aside a laundry tub and that other items including a nearly full bottle of ammonia were missing okay um the same day that the head of the state police crime lab sergeant sergeant Kennard christensen testified as to the results of forensic tests conducted in the lake family basement and the results of these tests confirmed evidence of the bloodstains in the four separate areas in response to the defense questioning sergeant christensen further stated that 
Although partial fingerprints have been discovered in the basement of the family home, no full fingerprints have been discovered in the basement, which had not belonged to any Link family member. On July 31st, the prosecution introduced two forensic witnesses to testify regarding the physical evidence indicating that the victims had been, the victim had been killed inside the home. The first witness testified that um, was the head of the Michigan Health Department's crime detective laboratory, Walter Holtz, and he testified to the human hair clippings found inside of Karen Sue Bynum's panties being an exact match to those recovered from the basement of Sergeant David Leake. Although subjected to intense cross-examination by Joseph Lucell as to the reliability of his findings, Holt stood his ground and remained adamant the color, length, type, and diameter of the hair samples found upon Karen's panties were a precise match to those found in the Leake family basement. Immediately following that testimony, a colleague of his named Curtis Fulker, Fluker testified that the blood type of the tissue samples recovered from the Link family basement matched that of Karen Sue Bynuman. Now remember, DNA wasn't really... It was in its zygote phases. Fuck its infancy. It was in its zygote phases by this point. Um, the 47th... A final witness to appear for the prosecution at John's trial was University of California chemistry professor, professor David or Dr. Vincent P. Gwynn, who testified that on August 5th, uh, to his conclusions that the hair samples retrieved from Karen's panties bore a remarkable similarity to those retrieved from the Leak household, and that upon statistical calculations, he had began the previous month the odds of erroneous matching of the hair samples earlier testified by Walter Holtz were considerably low. Upon cross-examination, Dr. Gwynn did agree with defense attorney Neil Fink that a statistical analysis of hair mixtures had never been attempted in court in the court of law, although he remained firm that his applications had been performed via scientific principles. I'm coming from the future. We are going to be doing this, and the shit will be admissible in court. So the defense witnesses were pretty much just like, you know, bullshit. There's that. It was all bullshit and lies. So do we really care about that? Nope. Do we care about closing arguments? Eh. What really matters the most with the closing arguments is this. When we closed with the defense, you know, we flat, or with the prosecution, we basically let it be known that there was a, no shadow of a doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this man committed this crime. At least we can connect him to Karen Bynuman. He had the accessibility to the home. Her hair, you know, the hairs from that home were found on her body and she was found in another location. Her blood was found in the home. On August 19, 1970, John Norman Collins was unanimously found guilty of the first-degree murder of Karen Sue Bynuman. He remained impassive upon hearing the jury foreman announce the verdict, although many spectators gasped audibly, and his mother and sister left the courtroom in tears. Formal sentencing was scheduled for 8.30 a.m. August 28th. On this date, John was formally sentenced 
to life imprisonment with no possibility for parole. Prior to his passing sentence, Judge Conlin asked John if he wished to address the court before mandatory life sentencing was imposed. In response, John rose from his chair and made the following speech. I have two things to say. I think they, the jury, conscientiously tried to give me a fair trial. The jury did not take its task lightly, but I think things were blown out of proportion. The circumstances surrounding this case prevented me from getting a fair trial. It was a travesty of justice that took place in this courtroom. I hope someday it will be corrected. Second, I never knew a girl named Karen Suit. I never had a conversation with her. I never took her to a wig shop. I never took her to my uncle's home. I never took her life. John was then informed by Judge Conlon that if the juror's verdict was wrong, the error would be corrected in due course. He then sentenced, he was then sentenced to serve a life term imprisonment with hard labor in solitary confinement at Southern Michigan Prison. Upon receipt of the guilty verdict against their client, John's defense attorneys announced their intention to appeal upon the grounds of tainted identification and the change of venue question. The first motion by John's attorneys contending denial of defense motions to move the trial outside of Washtenaw County and the prejudices of prosecution witnesses was filed with Michigan Court of Appeals on December 14, 1970. And of course, the appeal was formally rejected October 1972. So he continued to do a whole lot of appeals post-trial you know, um, between 1972 and 76, he appealed his murder conviction on four further four further occasions, citing contentions that Michigan murders had received extensive media publicity with Washington, in Washington County, and that five separate motions for change of venue have been submitted by the defense counsel, two of which have been filed throughout the actual jury selection process upon the grounds of pretrial publicity, minimizing any change of obtaining an unbiased jury in Washington County. Each motion filed had been reserved or in the final instance denied you know the lawyers continued to argue that shortly before jury selection had begun there was the indictment for the california murder of roxy ann phillips which it likely wise likewise received extended extensive media coverage in washington county which further reduced the chance of potential jurors being unbiased Moreover, a psychologist retained by the defense had testified on April 20th, 1970. This psychologist had been adamant that Colin, that John's trial should be held outside of Washington County. This motion had likewise been reserved. Furthermore, John's lawyers argued that issues were such as the admissibility of testimony relating to the microscopic analysis of hair samples presented at his trial. Guess what? I'm coming from the future. If this shit was still sitting somewhere in an evidence room somewhere bet you by golly wow we could figure out what was what coming from the future so you know we continue to do all of these appeals and subsequently we had an we had a waiver of extradition for california um they postponed all of the requests to extradite him to face the charges of Roxy Ann Phillips, um, citing that 
his then ongoing appeals against his convictions in the state of Michigan as the cause and their likely resubmittal should any of his Michigan appeals be successful. But then six months later, on Janu- in January 1972, the Monterey County District Attorney William Curtis formally announced via a spokesperson the intention of the California authorities to waive all extradition proceedings against John for Roxanne's murder. The spokesperson indicated that reasoning being that John had already received a life sentence in Michigan. The case, therefore, was un- was undeserving of priority attention by California authorities, in part due to the fact that John would be returned to Michigan to serve his sentence if convicted. So, at the time of the announcement of this decision, pre- preliminary legal maneuvers between Michigan and California authorities have been ongoing to extradite him, and although he was never tried for the murders of... Oh, boy. We're, I'm just going to name last names at this point. Flusher, Shell, Skelton, Bassam, Callum, or Phillips. Physical and circumstantial evidence exists in each case indicating that John had indeed committed these murders. For example, in the Mary Flezel case, investigators discovered that at the time of her disappearance, John had worked part-time in the Eastern Michigan University Administration Unit. He watched her. Okay? And at his office had been located directly opposite the hallway from the office where Mary herself worked. One of the personal items missing from her body was an Expo 67 Canadian silver dollar that she was known to have worn around her neck. Also, sidebar, there's a family, there's a website dedicated to her that her family put together and is beautifully constructed. It's also within my, you know, all of my sources. And you can see that her parents kept the souvenirs that she purchased from them when she went to Expo 67. It was a big deal, okay? Um, and it was discovered in his dresser when the police conducted the search of his room, and when he was confronted with the finding, he reportedly denied any knowledge or the existence of the item, insisting that it had never been in his room. He apparently neglected to dispose of that one item as it had as he had the personal possessions of the other victims two days prior to his arrest. In the case of Joan um, Elspeth Shell, two separate witness accounts have placed the victim both entering a car with three men on that night of her disappearance and walking alone in the company of a man believed to be John later that evening. One of the men in the car that she had entered with was Collins' roommate, Arnold Davis, who later informed police the girl had indeed entered the car he had been driving, but that John had insisted he give the, that he give her the lift that she was seeking to Ann Arbor in his own car. John and, uh, John and Joan had alighted from Arnold's car together, and Arnold had not seen his roommate for almost three hours before John had returned to their apartment alone, referring to Joan as a bitch and claiming that he dropped her off in Ann Arbor after being unable to obtain the sexual encounter he had hoped to achieve with her. Put out or get out. Fuck you. As he explained this to Arnold, John had been carrying a red handbag which he claimed Joan had left in his car the circumstantial evidence you know was just all over the place you know and I mean listen 
in the years that followed his conviction, his mother and siblings, several of his friends remained steadfast, you know, believers that this was a miscarriage of justice in the hands of the state of Michigan and that he is wrongfully incarcerated. His mother and his two siblings refused to speak with uh, Sergeant Leak and his wife Sandra following their testimony against John at his trial, despite the evident distress of Sandra Leak throughout her testimony, during which she had testified that John had been as close to me as her own sons. So this crushed her while she was up there saying all of the things she needed to say because she was a good human being. For several years, you know, he refused to grant interviews to the media, but six years after his conviction, he formally requested a personal interview with reporters for the Ann Arbor News. In the interview, John vehemently denied his guilt in any of the Michigan murders. He asserted the key evidence assessed attesting to his innocence had been suppressed by the prosecution team at his 1970 trial and that the jury had been biased in 77 on october 1977 he was transferred from southern michigan prison to marquette branch prison a more secure facility due to his repeated dealings in contraband drugs and his conspiring with fellow inmate with a fellow inmate to escape John was unable to to participate in actual successful escape due to a broken foot. Another escape attempt at Marquette Branch Prison via a tunnel with six fellow inmates was thwarted on January 31, 1979, and John and his co-conspirators were transferred to a more secure cell block. In 1980, John legally changed his surname to that of his biological father, Chapman. The following year, he formally requested to transfer to a Canadian prison in the belief that this would facilitate his prospects of eventual release. Um, because he holds dual, dual citizenship under Canadian law, it, it would have then been he would have then been eligible for parole after serving just nine years in Canada. His application was granted, then reversed in the wake of public outrage because people were pissed. Obviously, despite repeated challenging the overturn of the eighty-one decision to transfer him to to a Canadian prison, a federal appellate court ruled in May eighty-eight that he should remain incarcerated at Marquette. September 88, he agreed to participate in a live interview conducted by the WXYZ, you can't make this shit up, WXYZ TV talk show, Kelly and Company, to discuss his conviction. For security reasons, this this proposed live interview was canceled, although he agreed to submit a filmed interview. In this interview, he was he again denied his culpa- any culpability for any of the Michigan murders, and he insisted that the prosecution case against him was flawed. He was then transferred to Ionia Correctional Facility in August 1990. Throughout his earlier incarceration, you know he had been he had been he had a reputation for trying to escape and being a troublesome inmate. Uh, he dealt with contraband. He was just a problem child. 
He would later be returned to Marquette on July 11, 2005. A 62-year-old former nurse named Gary Earl Leiterman was charged with the murder of Jane Louise Mixer. And she was the one that I omitted from the script because they tried to put this off on him. And then we found out it wasn't him. And so we let that go. So he's currently serving his life sentence in administrative segregation at Marquette Branch Prison. He continues to maintain his innocence for the murder of Karen Sue Bynuman, as well as the other murders linked to the Michigan murder, despite having refused a 1977 offer to submit to further public polygraph test. So what had happened is this. John Norman Collins was a broken person from the beginning. Okay? He was one of those dark people, and I'm sorry about the barking in the background, but fuck it all. It's that time of year. Dogs are outside. But he, you know, was a broken person from the beginning. He was broken. He was born into a home of toxicity between his mother, his father figures, uh, whatever bullshit bullying he may or may not have encountered or the bullying that he decided to do because he had been beaten up as a kid and you know a lot of bullies are kids that are abused his sexual prolific uh i cannot fucking talk his sexual devious you know he was a deviant he would he had rapey behavior he was aggressive proclivities that's the word his sexual proclivities, his bloodlust, his hate for women. Obviously, he murdered these women because he hated women. All of these women, fun fact, were all brunette, and so was his mother and his sister as well. So my assistant and I sat around and hypothesized that perhaps these victims were substitutes for his sister. They were all on their period, and if you remember, he beat her for being pregnant, or they were substitutes for his mother. All I know is that this man is still alive. He's still serving time. Good riddance. Um, although he was only tried for one, I hope he's haunted by all. And, wow. Again, don't fucking hitchhike, people. And I mean, like, I have a hard time with that, too, because, like, I totally used to be the person that would accept the ride and pray that I wouldn't get fucked up, and obviously I didn't in those instances, but still, you know, you're always running a risk. Whew, this has been a very long episode. I hope you guys feel that you got every ounce of what had happened out of me. Kimberly, I just knocked over the microphone hope you guys enjoyed this episode i will be back soon with another stimulating episode of lesser known true crime dumb to rack your brains with hope you guys have a good night bye all